And hello, and welcome to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, on the web at KUCI.org and on iTunes at College Radio. Today is Wednesday, March 14th, 2012. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. My guests today are T. Jefferson Parker and Claire Bidwell-Smith. First up is T. Jefferson Parker. His writing career began in 1978 as a cub reporter on the weekly newspaper, The Newport Ensign. After covering police, city hall, and cultural stories for the Ensign, he moved on to the Daily Pilot newspaper, where he won three Orange County Press Awards for his articles. All the while, he was tucking away stories and information that would uh, be used in his first book. His first novel, Laguna Heat, was written on evenings and weekends while he worked as a reporter and was published to rave reviews and made into an HBO movie. The paperback made the New York Times bestseller list in 1986, and since then he has more than a dozen novels out. His most recent ones, L.A. Outlaws, The Renegades, Iron River, The Border Lords, and The Jaguar, the one we're going to talk about today, feature protagonist Charlie Hood, a Los Angeles Sheriff's Department deputy on loan to a Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms task force that's working on a legal gun trade along the U.S.-Mexico border. When he's not working on his books, Jeff spends his time with his family, hiking, hunting, and fishing, and exercising his dogs. Let's bring him on. Hey there. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? I am well, too. Um, for those who were not at the salon when you were there in January to talk about the Jaguar, talk a little bit about how the book came about. Well, I was inspired by a couple of couple of very disparate things when I, I began to write the book. One was a, was a story that I'd always loved as a child, and I had been hoping and trying to work into my work someday, and uh, that is the story of Scheherazade and her uh, being forced to to survive, if you will, by creating stories. And uh, I've come to identify with her a little bit over the years, and I, I've always loved that story. And, and, and so this story has a bit of Scheherazade in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that kind of inspired me was uh, was one of those things that you run across in the the the, the newspaper that you kind of kind of uh, look, look look twice at, and that was a story four or five years ago. I guess I became aware of it um, about um, uh, prosperous, wealthy, um, wicked cartel bosses down in Mexico um, found themselves uh, commissioning songs to be written about them and explo- uh, talking about their exploits. Uh, narco corridos, they were called, and, and each kingpin wanted to have the best song out there about himself. And, and so this, this book, in some weird way, is, a, is, is kind of Scheherazade meets the narco corrido. <laughs> <laughs> what a great pitch line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. You know, I've been curious because you have standalone novels um, as well as uh, as well as a few series um, in in your more than a dozen books. H- how many novels do you have out now? Eighteen, nineteen, nineteen, nineteen. Right now, yeah. Okay, so so talk about um, the advantages or disadvantages to writing a series character as opposed to standalones. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, I started my career as a firm standalone guy. Um, I didn't want to write a series uh, for various reasons. Uh, I thought I would feel kind of hemmed in, and and uh, but then I don't know. Back in the '90s, uh, mid '90s, I did embark on what became a trilogy. So I, I did kind of a small series in the '90s about an Orange County sheriff's deputy named Mercy Rayborn. Love that one. Yeah, thank you. And then I wrote some more standalones, and and um, was approached by uh, Dutton Publishers a few years ago to try a series, you know, a longer series. And I agreed to that, and so um, the Jaguar is the fifth uh, novel in the Charlie Hood series. Uh, um, writing a series, a series of novels with one character, um, one main character, or a few main characters, um, is a very different proposition than writing standalones. And I think, um, in some ways, it's harder. In some ways, it's easier. Um, the easy part is that you have the obvious in front of you as you go to write your next series book. You have a protagonist and a setting and a job and a history and. Etc. You, you you have certain you know parameters that are very obvious, and in a standalone you don't really have any of that. You have the great you know the the Hemingway blank page, and that's very very exciting and kind of daunting too. Um, you know, as 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 the Charlie Hood series has developed, uh, Jaguar's the fifth book. I, I've come to realize I realized two or three books ago that 
that these really, really are one giant book. I think when the series is done, say, at six books, I think what I'm going to have is one huge novel rather than six, you know, um, uh, six different novels. So the only way I could approach it was to make it one giant sprawling story, and that's kind of what it is right now. So do you feel that then publishers are more interested in series because they kind of hook, if a reader likes likes the first one to begin with, or even the last one, they're going to go back and read all of them? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the thought. I mean, series writing is, is publishers, you know, um, most publishers really would like anybody who's working in the mystery thriller vein, which, which I am, um, to do that. Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, I... It, yeah, if I if I like one, I'll I want to read them all. So it's true, but yeah. uh, you know, it's interesting as a writer though how to how to deal with that. I've I've heard other writers say they they don't like the pressure and they don't you know they don't necessarily want to stay with uh, the same character from book to book. Yeah, yeah, that's the danger is you don't want to be you don't want to be repetitive and you don't want to <laughs> you know feel like you're forced to <clears throat> excuse me to uh, write certain stuff and. Uh, um, you know, the hardest thing for any, any novelist, any of my buddies anyway, or myself, is to find a, a story and, and characters that are, that are suitably compelling and interesting for you to spend an entire year with them every single day for eight hours, uh, literally living with them. You really need to have something that you're enthused about. And if you're not enthused about your guy or your setting or your whatever, or if you just can't face book number 13 in the series or whatever, <laughs> goes, then that, that's going to be a long year. <laughs> <laughs> This would be a great time to have you read to us. Would you do that? Yeah, happy to. And if you just tune in, you're listening to Writers on Writing, and T. Jefferson Parker is about to read from The Jaguar, published by Dutton. Yeah, okay. I'm going to read from a, a part of the very first scene in which uh, um, a young woman and her husband asleep in their home in San Diego County, uh, dark and stormy night, are rudely uh, awakened by ten heavily armed men who who beat and, and, and disarm the husband and um, throw the wife into a, a, a van and kidnap her and drive away. Um, she's got nothing on but her nightgown and a serape over her. Uh, she's a young uh, singer-songwriter named Erin McKenna, kind of on her way up. Her beaten husband is a, is a sheriff's deputy, overwhelmed by these obviously bad men. And So we'll intercept Erin in the middle of the dark uh, on this dark and stormy night in the van, with the ten bad guys. Okay. She sat in the middle seat of the second row, still in the nightgown, a red and blue striped serape from the barn pulled over her shoulders. Her nerves were raw and her insides were clenched, and in spite of the warm night, she was cold. She listened to the engine and the tires on the asphalt and the arrhythmic breathing of the men and the defroster going on and off. She pictured Bradley, her husband, sitting in the trunk of the cyclone with his head bleeding, trying to tell her that everything would be all right. And she pictured the baby inside her, his heart tapping away and his cells dividing amid the jolts of fear that must surely he, be, he must surely be receiving from her. Such terror and not yet born, thought Aaron. This world will be his. His life, four months strong, such a blessing after her failures. She lowered her face to her hands and rubbed hard at her temples and willed the nightmare to end. In the dark, they drove Interstate 8 near the California-Mexico border, then got off at Hacumba, and within seconds, a boy on a motorbike was leading them from one dirt road to another to another. This road shrunk to a faint trail that allowed them to trundle slowly between the hills of rocks. There was a narrow bridge and a short tunnel. Somewhere, they crossed into Mexico, and Heriberto, he's a driver, said to one of his men that he was relieved to be home again where he could drink the water. No more Washington's revenge. Of course, this must be funny to a gringa if she could understand it, he added. Erin's Spanish was good, and she had always loved Mexican music and could play and sing Norteño and marimba and fandango songs long before she knew what they were about. But she didn't laugh at Heriberto's joke. Forty minutes later, she was sitting on a small, muscular jet shooting into the sunrise at 400 miles an hour. She dozed with her head against a window. Fear had always made her short of breath and groggy, and she always tried to let the grogginess work for her. It had helped her survive possible calamities for all of her 26 years. The male tarantulas that emerged from the hundreds that spring evening in the campground outside of Tucson, the runaway horse near the ranch near Austin, 
the attempted assault in Las Vegas, the car accident in L.A. Panic kills, Dad had always said. A tough man, fabulous on the harmonica. He'd fought in Vietnam and read Hemingway, so she told herself to stay calm and deliberate and go to the cold place inside that her father had talked about. Steer yourself out of this nightmare, she thought. Hmm, thank you so much. That was T. Jefferson Parker reading from The Jaguar. Um, I always talk to you about your villains because you write such good ones. Um, talk about that. I, I noticed that n- newer writers or writers working on their first um, crime novel um, sometimes have a real hard time creating villains that are complex, that have depth, that you you know you like as well as hate, um, which... To me, that's what a good vil- villain is, that that, that he's complex or she's complex. Will you talk a little bit about that? That's a good question. Yeah, I think I, I was at the Tucson Festival of Books over the weekend, and we talked about this a lot. It was on a panel called called uh, Vile Villains or something <laughs> like that. And, and the topic was how to make villains who are, who are you know, compelling and interesting. And, and uh, I, I do think that villains are, are very important in, a, in, in books like these, especially any novels, really. You, you need a capable... Um, you know, antagonist, and, and, and in a book like this, you need you need you need a, a fearsome character to put your your hero up against. And and I think what makes probably makes a, a, a villain the most the most compelling for me anyway is is is, is unpredictability. And, and 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 I think a good villain is a mix of 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 of, of terrible characteristics and real and really good ones too. Not necessarily good, but interesting. And uh, you know, uh, a, a one-dimensional, totally evil monster is not interesting. But 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 an evil monster who actually does something compelling, such as uh, he's he's a passionate stamp collector, now becomes interesting. So you have to humanize, and you have to give this person um, uh, this this villain. You have to give this villain um, hand over us. We have to never quite know what that man's going to do or that woman's going to do. And, and and as soon as you have your reader, I think leaning. Well, what's this guy going to do? Is he going to going to erupt in violence, or, or is he going to go buy some more stamps? All of a sudden, now you're getting, uh, you get into interesting literature. Hmm. And and uh, in the Jaguar, Armenta um, loves music. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that. Talk about, and then also talk a little bit about your the the music uh, that was created for the book. Really. Oh, for the book. Yeah. Well, Armenta. Yeah, he's case in point, Barbara. He's He's the you know the, the the antagonist of the book, if you will, and uh, he's kind he, he's a, he's he's a powerful self-made cartel drug lord. Uh, he's the head of the Gulf Cartel. Um, as such, he has a history of of, of 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 cold, calculating violence and and mercilessness and and ambition and, and and greed. And he is a he's a formidable man in many many ways. Also, on the other hand, uh, he loves his two sons. He agonizes. Uh, uh, still thinking about the the beautiful son who dies a, an accidental death uh, in an earlier novel, and he and he and, and he disciplines very harshly his wicked son who's growing up to be just like him. So he's caught between these these, these currents of good and, and evil with his own sons. He loves music. Uh, he's a he's a fine accordion player and a pretty good singer. And 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 we find as the book develops that that he and and Aaron are are. Uh, um, but both music lovers. She's a musician. He's a fan, and and uh, they share this passion for music. And and so he's he's not just a one-dimensional guy who shows up. He's a he's a narco with a recording studio and an encyclopedic knowledge of current pop music. And um, so that I think makes him very interesting. And then of course during the course of the of the book, Aaron is forced. Uh, this kidnapped woman is forced to write a song. It's it's going to be one of the conditions of her release is that she has to write a song about Benjamin Armenta, this, this drug lord. And, you know, hence the Scheherazade uh, tale comes in. And she has to write the song. And so I knew I would have to write the song in the book at some point. And I did write the song. Uh, but I'm not a songwriter. And the lyrics weren't very, really very good. And I couldn't make it work. And I gave it to my old buddy and ex-brother-in-law, Tom Bagley, who's a, who's a professional musician. And he took it to his friends. And they rewrote the song. And they added to it. And they, they got Benji's story all straight in the song. And they put it to music. And and um, gathered up a, 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 some crack players, some wonderful musicians, some, some uh, guys from Orange County, some guys from Laguna, some, uh, some Veracruzano-style Mexican players from L.A., and they recorded the song. And um, so, actually, you can listen to that song. You can hear that song. You can buy that song for a buck from CDBaby.com or iTunes or whomever. 
And um, that song really sort of galvanized the book. And when that song was finished, even though I'd only written, you know, 5% of it, I was very, very proud of that song. And it, it kinda, it's kind of a distillation of the book into four minutes, if you will. That's great. And uh, can, can that link be found on your website? Yeah, I think there's a way to get there from my uh, from my website. Check it out. There's some directions on how to find that. Too. Okay, it's pretty great. easy. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I'm curious about y- your background as a reporter in getting into the series because I think it was with the book. Was it with the book Iron River? I think the third one in the series that um, that you started talking a whole lot about, or maybe before, maybe in one of the earlier books in the series you started talking about the the you know the trade the guns and drug trade between the US and Mexico and it seems like it's right when it was hitting the newspapers um, you really seem to have had um, done some early research or it was just sort of the uh, if there's a creative unconscious you reached up and you, you pulled down something that was about to hit Will you talk about that, or was it just, did you just see it coming? Do you live in, you know, close to the Mexico border? Did you did you see it coming? I mean, how did that all happen? Yeah, good question. You know, I think it was kind of mainly just serendipity. I would like to say that I had sort of my, 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 my fingers to the pulse of, of the world, but I, I really didn't. I just, <laughs> I just read the read the newspapers and 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 watched the news like you know anyone else does and stuff. And and it and it maybe because I moved down here to closer to the border. I'm in San Diego County now. The coverage was maybe a little better there at that time, briefly anyway. And um, you know when I when it finally dawned on me or it clicked in my head that these these terrible you know cartel wars and the growing thousands of people who were dying in drug related murders in Mexico each year when it finally dawned on me that a great many of those murders are committed with guns uh, built in uh, sold in and smuggled out of the United States that's where the guns come from most of them not all of them but a lot of them and uh, as soon as that light went on i thought oh well what are we doing to keep those guns from getting smuggled down there which led me directly to ATF and which is why i took my my little hero charlie away from the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, and I attached him to the ATF because I could get him down to the border working that gun trade because I think that that's a really interesting facet of the the drug wars, if you will. You know, there's the drugs and there's the cash and there's the illegal people being smuggled, and and, and, and sort of the fourth part of that witch's brew are the guns. You know, where do they get them? How do they get them? How much do they cost? What are they? What are the penalties? Who's doing it? What are the, you know, how, how are we preventing it? All that stuff. So, so I've been kind of working the gun trade uh, for, for three or four years now. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting how that, how that happens. Um, I always learn something from your books, too, and, and that's, that's one of the reasons, I think, one of the many reasons I, I like your writing so much. And in this one, you employ carrier pigeons. <laughs> how, how did that idea come about? I don't know. Good question. You know, I think uh, you know. Sometimes I get uh, you know when I read I read thrillers and look around me and stuff. I I get so tired of the of this of the sort of pernicious digital world that's out there and, and all the all the hero has to do is somehow tap into it correctly and you know solve all the problems and 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 everything's digital this and digital that. And I thought you know something I'm I'm going to be a reactionary. I'm I'm going to have the I'm going to have the you know the chase to get these people to get to get. Air and rescued. I'm going to have it done by carrier pigeon. The only way, <laughs> the only way to get information in and out of Armenta's castle, really, is there's no phones. You, it's dead. It's dead zone. All you can communicate on is, a, is with a satellite phone. But he won't let anybody have one except himself. So, so everybody's kind of mute in this in this castle. And uh, but if you can get, um, but Aaron finds a way to get carrier pigeons in and out to communicate with the outside world and her husband. And I just thought it would be kind of a wonderful um, antidote to uh, Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a live bird as opposed to uh, a digital bird. Yeah, there you go. Well, you know, along those lines, um, in terms of sort of ideas and, and you know, how, how we write plot and story and all that, what, what percentage of material would you say occurs because you are steadily working on a project, um, you know, because every day you're you're there in your chair with your manuscript as opposed to just, you know, walking along, you haven't been with your project very long, but you're thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, is it a matter of, do you think of sitting there and being there to to have this sort of, you know, idea come about or various ideas come about? You know, yes. For me, for me, the very, the, the, the sweet spot 
is 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 sitting here exactly where I'm sitting right now with the screen on and um and 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 writing or getting ready to write thinking about what I'm going to do you know I I I I collect a lot I'm always I'm always working whether it's over dinner or in the middle of my dreams or walking the dogs whatever it might be there's always a track that's kind of thinking about the story you know uh, you know subconsciously probably most of the time and, and yet when you get to the chair and sit down you know the writers learn as you know that's kind of when you open things up and you kind of go back and collect what you've been doing for the past 24 hours or whatever it might be and that's where where things where things come out for me anyway um, I, I really that's one of the reasons why I, I like this job is because when I, I get up in the morning early and brain's kind of clear and I get out here to the office and Sit down, and kind of pick up the story from yesterday, and see where it's going to go. It's um, it's um, it's it's exciting because I'm not really sure what's going to happen. I don't know what what the subconscious brain has come up with in the past few hours, but I'm about to find out. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love the uh, story about how the title came about. Can you uh, can you tell it? <laughs> Jaguar. <laughs> I wanted to, to title this book "The Jaguars of Veracruz" because there's a big famous band in the book, a, a Mexican banda band, um, called the, who called themselves the Jaguars of, of, of Veracruz. And that's uh, a fictional band. I made them up, but they're huge in the book. And, and, and I wanted this idea of music and the Jaguars of Veracruz to, to, uh, to be the title. Of some of the, one of the big scenes in the book, Passages, takes place in the city of Veracruz, and the, the, the novel is shot through with things musical. So the Jaguars of Veracruz was cool. And also there are several Jaguars in the book. Benjamin Armenta's nickname is a Jaguar, although no one will call that to his face. And there is a literal Jaguar living in his house and um, Jaguars in cage. And so there's just Jaguars and Veracruz around. And, and New York didn't like the idea. They said, you know, we don't like the Jaguars of Veracruz. We like Jaguars, but we don't like Veracruz, so get rid of that. So I thought, okay, I'm going to call it the, the, the Pirates of Veracruz, the Runners of Veracruz, the something and something. And I went through every possible noun in the English language, you know, of Veracruz and, and uh, you know, try to get rid of that, you know, getting rid of Veracruz. And finally I said to my, 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 my son, I said, Tommy, if you can think of a good title, um, you know, that involves the name Jaguar but not Veracruz, please let me know. And, uh, you know, if you can think of a title that I like and they use, I'll give you 100 bucks. And he goes, okay, just call it the Jaguar. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, I think I'll give it a try. I like the Jaguar. And uh, I called New York, and they said, oh, yeah, we love the we Jaguar. Love it. So that's how the title came up. Yeah, I love how kids can just get straight to it. <laughs> yeah, it was good. It didn't even blink. It was like, oh, just call it the Jaguar. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been, of course, a pleasure talking with you again. And, uh, you know, I, I always want to talk to you whenever you have a new book come out. So, uh Thank you. Well, so thank much. you. I enjoy these talks a lot, Barbara. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. All right. That was T. Jefferson Parker. His book is called The Jaguar, published by Dutton. And uh, it's a good one. They're all good ones, you know, all of them. He is one of my favorites. I've said it before. Um, I'll say it again. We're going to take a real short break. And when we come back, we should have Claire Bidwell-Smith with us. Uh, she wrote a memoir called The Inheritance of Grief. Um, so stay with us and uh, we'll be right back. see you go come back baby let's talk it over one more time my heart's full of sorrow mama aching tears gone 24 hours child seem like a thousand years come back baby Talk it over one more time. Come 
let's talk it over before you go away. Come back, baby, let's talk it over one more time. I lost my mojo. Lost it. Where'd it go? I don't know, but I found it. I found it on Writers on Writing. Writers on Writing? Wednesday mornings at 9. 9 a.m. in the morning. With Barbara DeMarco Barrett and Marie Stone? That's them. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. And welcome back to Writers on Writing on KCI-FM 88.9 in Irvine. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and on the web at KUCI.org and iTunes College Radio. I remain Barbara DeMarco Barrett. I was here the first half with T. Jefferson Parker, and I am back with Claire Bidwell-Smith. She lives in Los Angeles. She's an experienced therapist specializing in grief and is the author of the memoir, The Rules of Inheritance, published by Penguin Hudson Street. Claire has a bachelor's degree from the New School University in Manhattan and a master's degree in clinical psychology from Antioch in L.A. She's written for many publications, including Time Out New York, Yoga Journal, Black Book Magazine, The Huffington Post, and Chicago Public Radio. She's also worked for nonprofits like Dave Eggers Literary Center 826 L.A., and most recently as a bereavement counselor for a hospice in Chicago. And uh, as I said in her bio, she is author of The Rules of Inheritance. It's a memoir, and she's here to talk about it. Hi, Claire. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, sure. Thank you for coming on. Let's begin by uh, hearing you talk about the book, how the book came about. Sure. Um, it's a memoir, uh, like you stated, and it's about how when I was 14, both of my parents were diagnosed with cancer at the same time. Um, I'm an only child, and the ensuing years of my adolescence were just kind of about a lot of grief and hospitals and surgeries and loss and um, just kind of how that shaped my identity as, as a young woman. My mother died when I was 18 and my father when I was 25, and um, the book kind of follows me on a journey which I attempt to make sense in my world as um, as a young woman, kind of without without a family and without anchors. And um, there's definitely some dark parts and some hard parts. Um, and eventually, I make my way out of it in my late twenties and find a really healing place. And I end up going on to become a grief counselor, which is what I do now. Um, it's yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, you know, it's it's not just a book about grief. It's definitely very coming of age. It's um, it's, there's a lot of travel. There's a lot of stuff about love and relationships. Um, my parents were very interesting people. My mother was uh, 40 when I was born, and my father was 58. And um, they had just lived a lot of life. And they, my father had been a POW in World War II and gone on to travel the world. And my mother was this very interesting, eclectic, beautiful artist living in Manhattan when they met. And um, <clears throat> they just kind of provided a really unique backdrop for which to go through all of these experiences. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, the structure of the book is interesting in that, and it's I think it's talked about a lot, actually, that it's divided into five parts, the stages of grief. And uh, I was curious if that's how the book came to you. You know, I wrote a couple of other versions of this book in my earlier 20s. I've always been a writer. It's what I've done since I was a little kid. Um, the counseling and the psychology kind of came later, and so I wrote a couple of other versions of this book that didn't work so well. I think memoir is tricky. I think you can get kind of laden down by a story when you're writing about your life. You know, there's a lot of stuff you end up having to put in, sometimes unnecessarily. And when I finally came upon this structure, it, it's totally out of sequence. It's nonlinear. It's based around Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's Five Stages of Grief. 
which are um, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And each section of my book has three chapters that pertain to that time period of my life in which I experienced that stage. And so in the first section of denial, you see me at 18 when my mother dies, and then you see me again at 14 when they're both diagnosed, and then again at 25 when my father is getting sick again. And the structure worked so well in terms of writing a memoir in that it allowed me to leave out a lot of things that weren't necessary to the story, whereas I think in a typical structure you end up having to put in, like, filler to get from point A to point B, and it kind of can bog down a story. Um, and this allowed me to just concentrate on what was what was important to what I wanted to say. Hmm. Interesting. So, as you said, you you uh, worked on it for a long time, and you know what kept you with it was it? Did you just know that this was a story you had to write, and you had to find a way to write it, or um, you know? How, I'm always curious about why why some projects we let go, and others we just have to stay with. Yeah, you know, I did. I just kept coming back to it to the point where it was getting embarrassing <laughs> to talk about to my friends. Like, oh, yeah, I'm still writing that memoir. Um, I wrote two entire versions of it that have nothing to do with the one that's now published. And I gave up so many times. Um, I went through, you know, so many searches with agents and publishers and writing this, and I just kept going back to it. And this final version that be- that became published, I literally wrote it in, like, nine months and then sold it. I mean, it was just finally, I think born. <laughs> and I finally got to the point where I'd written out so much of the the dribble that that I refined it to to what it was what it is now, which is um which is something I'm very proud of. So, yeah, I just I couldn't let it go. I and I tried. I tried to let it go because it started to seem really pointless at certain times. Um but I think the writer in me just um, really wanted to tell this story. When I when I was grieving and when I was going through it, a lot of hard times in my early 20s, I turned to books often, and I read a lot of other memoirs, and um, they were very helpful just in not feeling so alone and mm-hmm. kind of seeing other people's stories. And the thing that kept driving me back to them, though, was I kept looking for my own story and not finding it, and I just felt like I had to write it myself. Hmm. I'd love to hear you read from your book. Would you do that? Sure. And if you just tune in, you're listening to Writers on Writing, and Claire Bidwell-Smith is about to read from The Rules of Inheritance, published by Hudson Street Press, which is a division of Penguin. So um, I'm going to read from Chapter 5 in my book. It takes place in 2000, the year 2000, and I'm 22 years old, and um, it's actually in this section of anger, um, which I'm not sure will come through in this excerpt necessarily, but um, it's from the chapter. I turned 20 the week I moved to New York City. I wore a pale blue dress on my birthday, and I was young and skinny and much more beautiful than I realized. New York was instantly everything. It was sudden and disarming and utterly consuming. Before a week had passed, I couldn't imagine ever leaving. In those early days, I swayed under the weight of the buildings towering above me. The ribbons of people on the sidewalk pulled me to and fro, and I learned quickly to just give myself over to it all. Colin had been living here for two months when I arrived. I told myself that it would just be for the summer, that I'd go back to Vermont and college in September. But even then, I knew I wasn't going anywhere. The second I stepped foot in Manhattan, I had no intentions of ever leaving. In the fall, I applied last minute to the new school, the university where I would finish my last few years of college. I had insomnia that first summer and stayed up watching as dawn rose lazily outside the window, quietly extinguishing the city lights until the skyline was something solid and dusky. Right away, I knew I shouldn't have moved in with Colin, that we were too young and too damaged to see the thing through. On those nights, I thought about my mother, about her living here for all those years, and I wondered what she would think about me being here. Each street I walked down, I wondered if she had done the same. Every bar or shop I went into, I tried to picture her there, too. I imagined my timid footsteps leaving dusty prints on top of hers. My mother wouldn't have approved of me being here. That much I knew. New York was too big, too gritty for the daughter she had known. The night I moved to New York, I drove down FDR Drive alongside the rushing Brown River past the high-rises and the Domino Sugar Factory. My cat mewled quietly in her carrier in the passenger seat beside me, and the Lower East Side loomed in the foreground. I couldn't shake the sinking feeling that this was not the girl I was supposed to be. 
No, the girl I was supposed to be would still be at college in Vermont. I would have some sweet and apologetic hippie boyfriend who I would spend the summer with before starting my sophomore year. We would drink coffee all the time and take walks in the woods. He'd have those stupid poetry magnets on his fridge and would write me little messages that would make me blush with both gratitude and embarrassment. <clears throat> but gripping the steering wheel as I made my way into the East Village that night, I knew that girl was lost forever. She disappeared the night my mother died, and I was never going to see her again. Three years passed, three years without a mother. Now I am irrevocably this girl, the one who has tattoos and drinks too much, the girl who rushes from her noontime writing classes in Greenwich Village to her bartending job in Union Square, the one who is sometimes afraid of her alcoholic boyfriend. In three years, my grief has grown to enormous proportions. Where in the very beginning I often felt nothing at all, grief is now a giant sad whale that I drag along with me wherever I go. It topples buildings and overturns cars. It leaves long furrowed trenches in its wake. My grief fills rooms. It takes up space and it sucks out the air. It leaves no room for anyone else. Grief and I are left alone a lot. We smoke cigarettes and we cry. We stare out the window at the Chrysler building twinkling in the distance and we trudge through the cavernous rooms of the apartment like miners aimlessly searching for a way out. Grief holds my hand as I walk down the sidewalk and grief doesn't mind when I cry because it's raining and I cannot find a taxi. Grief wraps itself around me in the morning when I wake from a dream of my mother, and grief holds me back when I lean too far over the edge of the roof at night, a drink in my hand. Grief acts like a jealous friend, reminding me that no one else will ever love me as much as it does. Grief whispers in my ear that no one understands me. Grief is possessive and doesn't let me go anywhere without it. I drag my grief out to restaurants and bars where we sit together sullenly in the corner, watching everyone carry on around us. I take grief shopping with me, and we troll up and down the aisles of the supermarket, both of us too empty to buy much. Grief takes showers with me, our tears mingling with the soapy water, and grief sleeps next to me, its warm embrace like a sedative, keeping me under for long, unnecessary hours. Grief is a force, and I am swept up in it. Mm, thank you so much. That was Claire Bidwell-Smith reading from The Rules of Inheritance. Um, Talk a little bit about the um, the format, the format of uh, of paragraph breaks, no indents, and uh, no quotation marks for dialogue. Yeah. Um, was it always like that? Was it like that when you in the earlier drafts too? It was not. Um, I was a poetry major when I was in high school and, and the college, early college, and and so that's kind of been a format that's resonated with me a lot. Sentence fragments. Um, just a little bit of an unusual structure. And when I started to write this version, that's just how it came out. It, I wanted the book to be very fluid. I wanted there to be space in the book. Um, I really I didn't want this to be a heavy, saturated, sentimental memoir. Um, the material enough is heavy and saturated, you know. So I wanted the writing to, to give a lot of space and breath to the reader. And I felt like the techniques I employed do that. Um, and, it, and, it, and it becomes very fluid. And regarding the quotation marks, you know, I just, I didn't feel good about putting quotation marks around things that, that I was remembering people had said. You know, I, of course I'm not remembering them verbatim. <laughs> I'm, I'm recalling things from 15, 20 years ago, and I know that, that the actual sentences are not the same. Um, and it just felt easier to not put quotation marks around something like that. And it, and it works. It seems to work, at least. <laughs> mm-hmm. It does. It does. It does work very well. Um, and I, I'm also curious about, in, in the book, there's a little um, author's note that uh, that it's a work of nonfiction and some names have been and details have been altered to protect the privacy of certain people. And I'm curious about that in terms of the original draft. Did you do that from the start? And, and when you went to sell it, say, you know, I, I changed some things here. Or did that come later where, you know, you wrote it, you, you got your agent, your editor, and, and all decided that certain things should be changed and you would just simply add a note? The latter. Um, uh, everything was changed later. I wrote the book as, well, as, it, as truthfully as possible with every name, every detail. Um, and then 
Penguin legal team, when, once the final draft was turned into my editor, the Penguin legal team had to comb through it and decide what, what I was going to get screwed <laughs> over. <laughs> and, um, so I, I really wanted to change as little as possible. And, uh, and so really the only things that have been changed are uh, two to three people's names and, and like their hair color. <laughs> <laughs> and well, there's one chapter that takes place at a very fancy, glossy magazine. It's kind of a Devil Wears Prada-ish chapter, and that was the real one that had to have some some changes because um, because my deductible is like a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> I just want to get sued by this magazine for writing about them and their terrible editor. Um, so yeah, it's really just stuff like that. Uh, oh, that's funny. Um, so deductible, do you do you have some you know a literary sort of policy out for this sort of thing, or is that through the publisher? That's what, it comes with the publisher, but um, essentially, like, I end up having to pay a hundred grand if I get to and Penguin picks up the rest, and I was just like, you know, I don't have a hundred grand. I'm a struggling writer, so I will, I will change that woman's hair color and her name. That is funny. Yeah. You are listening to Writers on Writing, and I'm with Claire Bidwell-Smith. Her book is The Rules of Inheritance. Um, yeah, it is such an honest book, and I am always curious with memoirs, um, and especially memoirs that are that are gritty and raw, um, where the authors have kids, and as I do. And do you ever have you ever worried, or do, when you were writing it, did you ever worry that um, you know perhaps you were too honest, or or um, what might your children think? Should they read it someday? What do you do with those kinds of thoughts or feelings, or did you just not have them? Um, yeah, I guess there's two answers to that. When I wrote this book, there was a lot of people to worry about <laughs> who would read this. And, you know, like anywhere from my mother-in-law to, you know, ex-boyfriends that I write about, um, to my husband reading about ex-boyfriends that I was writing about, um, all kinds of things, my family members. And I had to put all of it out of my head and just write the book that I wanted to write. And then I decided I would worry about all that later, like if I, if I actually published it. Um, when I sold it, I had written nine out of the 15 chapters. So I was pretty well into it. Um, and and I had really committed to to the truth and the honesty of it all, which I think was the only way to do it. And then later I had to start worrying about it all. Um, regarding children, I'm a new mother. My daughter's only two and a half. I have another one on the way at the moment. And I don't know, I, I guess I think I'm so new at this mothering thing that I have a hard time imagining her at 16 still, but I know that she's going to get her hands on this book at some point, and I'm not going to be able to stop it. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be interesting. In some ways, I think it's an amazing thing to leave to have for my for my children to mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do too. I don't want them to read it until they're like 30. <laughs> right, right. It's funny. I had a story come out in, in uh, Orange County Noir in 2010, and it was a really dark story. And, and my son was, I think he was 15 at the time, because he's 17 now, or maybe he was turning 15. And I said, you know, I just don't want you to read it yet. And he said, uh... Okay. <laughs> I said, my daughter's already too headstrong. She's not going to say okay. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want you to think of me in this way because it's so dark and it's in first person. And you may think that this is me, you know, telling the story about me and it's fiction. And maybe for a little while you could just not read it. <laughs> so far, I, I don't think that he has. Approach, but I'm not <laughs> no, I think girls might be a little bit different. I mm-hmm. think uh, I think girls might be a little bit different. I would want to read it if my mom had some juicy memoir. Yeah, <laughs> thirteen or fourteen. I would do everything I could to get my hands on that. Right, right. <laughs> but um, I don't know what I could do. Well, yeah, but I, I mean, I think, it, like you said, you just have to write it. You just have to, you know, you just worry about it later because otherwise, you know, everybody becomes your editor or censor. Oh, you maybe. do. You have to put them all out of your head. There's just no way. If I kept my mother-in-law in my head and what she would think of this book as I was writing it. I would have written, like, Pat the Bunny or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm curious also about the title, because most memoirs have subtitles, and yours is simply the title with um, little words at the bottom of the cover that say a memoir. Mm-hmm. Was was there at any point, was there a subtitle at any point, or did the publisher want one? Or I think we talked about it, and we couldn't really come up with anything. Everything sounded a little overwrought, like a journey of grief or something mm-hmm. awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we just decided to let it be. The title really plagued me for years as I was working on the versions of this book. I just, how do you title, you know, like a whole chapter of your life? Um, and I got I got really stuck on this idea of the word inheritance because I felt like 
it was such a weighty word, and it really I had inherited so much not not just grief or loss, but um, just kind of a legacy of who my parents are. Uh, they were just such incredible people, and I felt like I inherited a lot of their strength and their their ability to move through life and the things they taught me. So I, I was kind of struck by that word, and um, and I and I was actually literally just doing Google searches on on the word inheritance to kind of see what came up with it, and it's a it's actually a legal term, the rules of inheritance. Um, that phrase is a legal term. <laughs> so, and I just thought it sounded nice, and I liked the way the rules kind of fit with using the five stages of grief. Hmm. Hmm. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I like the cleanness of it. That um, you know. Because the, the title is, is sort of big, you know, inheritance is a big word. And um, and then a memoir is very simple. It just is, It's a nice balance so that you, you know what it is as you look at the cover, but there's not like a, sub, a subtitle to kind of lead you into it. It's good. I think some people think it's going to be some kind of like Kardashian memoir about inheriting a lot of money, but it's definitely not that. Except when you look at the photo on the cover it's you know it's not kardashian you know no. <laughs> i mean it's great you know it, it all works together so well um let's talk a, just a tiny bit because we just have a few minutes left about um sort of social media blogging of of you know sort of being a writer and being able to put most of your writing energy into your work and yet there's you know these days the necessity to be out there and to be marketing or you know, promoting whatever you're doing. And how do you balance all that? Because you have a real nice blog, and it seems like you post a lot to it. Um, and yet, you know, you're a writer, and you're getting work done and books out there. Yeah, it's a challenging process. Um, I have been blogging since 2003, which is a really long time. Um, after I graduated from my BA program, I really missed writing classes. I missed having um, people accountable to write for or um and so I, I actually started a blog back in 2003 and just, just to have an outlet and to have some pressure to write. And it was great in terms of that. And I have been writing, you know, almost daily ever since then. And it's, I think it's really helped just kind of keep my writing fresh and learn a lot. And, um, and it, has, it has helped enormously in terms of gaining a platform as a writer, which is such a gross thing to worry about. But it's so important these days mm-hmm. in publishing. When I went to when I created my book proposal and took it out to agents and then my agents took it out to publishers, that was an important component. You know, they wanted to know what my platform was, who I could reach, you know, how I was going to help market this book. Um, and having a blog with thousands of readers was was definitely helpful. Um, and you know, it can be a total pain sometimes. Sometimes I really don't want to mess around with blogging or Twitter or all those things. It can get really exhausting, and I would rather reserve my energies for for writing, um, and so I'm constantly working to find a balance between the two. But unfortunately, it's, I think it's a pretty necessary evil these days. Yeah, it does seem to be. You know, I think it's it's finding that balance so that you, you know, still get work done and you don't spend all, all your time doing it because you, you can. I mean, you just, you know, get caught up in what other people are doing and saying and... It's very distracting, you know, um, to be involved in all the social media. But at the same time, I feel like I have met and worked with so many incredible writers because of this. You know, I've, I've been able to network and just communicate with writers that I really admire or that I've, I've always wanted to reach out to, and it's, it's become a great way to do that. Um, you had mentioned um, your agent or, or, you know, getting an agent and selling your book. Did you write the entire book um, first, or did you just have a few chapters and a proposal that you used to get an agent? I, um, I, I had written about half the book when I decided I was ready to search for an agent. Um, I felt like the book had taken on enough of a life that I felt really confident in it. And at that point, I kind of paused in the writing of the book, and I started working on a book proposal. And um, I wrote a pretty serious, formal book proposal, and um, it had three chapters, three sample chapters, and it had an entire outline for the the whole book, Um, and it had an overview and a summary and all that. And I sent that out to about 20 agents, um, I had got actually a lot of queries back about seeing the proposal, but ultimately um, I got a lot of rejections. And then I found my agent, Wendy Sherman, who is just incredible. Mm-hmm. I love her. And she sold the book in three weeks to Penguin. Mm, that's great. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, that, that uh, 
probably some are kicking themselves now, but I think that's just the way it is. I mean, so often it's a matter of taste and, and finding the agent that just connects and loves it, and that's it. It is. I, yeah, I think that it's different for everybody, and they just have to, it has to resonate with them, or they're not going to even be able to sell it. Hmm. Interesting. Well, it's, it's been... a daunting process for all Yeah, of it is daunting, and, and uh, but it, yeah, it's fascinating, and it's, 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 uh, it's a matter of staying with it like you did, you know, and if, if there's a project that's just, you know, gnawing at you that you have to see to the end, you see it to the end. That's true. You really do. I'm, I'm grateful to myself for not, for not fully giving up, even though I did a few times. <laughs> well, it's been great talking with you, and we'll talk more in May when you're down at uh, the salon, and uh, I'm sure so much more will be happening by, by then, but um, in the meantime, uh, Best of luck with uh, with the rules of inheritance, and we'll talk real soon. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. That was Claire Bidwell-Smith. Her book, again, uh, that we've been speaking about is The Rules of Inheritance, and it's published by Hudson Street Press, um, a division of Penguin. And you can find her blog under her name. Um, as I said, she's going to be with us here in Corona Del Mar in May. May 15th, along with James Brown, the memoirist. Um, it's a Tuesday night at the Pen on Fire Speakers Series Writer Salon. You can find that info on uh, my website. Go to penonfire.com and click on Writer Salon, and uh, it'll be a great night in May. And uh, can't wait. Can't wait for both of them, actually. James Brown, who's going to be with us then, will be on the show, I think, uh, in two weeks. So. We'll, we'll talk to him then. There's a lot of things going on. Um, a lot of literary events coming up. It seems that May, April and May uh, are the time. So you can go to my blog, penonfire.blogspot.com. And uh, a couple of posts ago, I think last week, I put up a list of Southern California literary events that you can find. And some have links and some don't. I need to get back there and put new links on. So... Um, Anyway, you have been listening to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM in Irvine. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and I will see you next time.